Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, edu folk. Welcome to the Sunday Social. I'm going to be getting Omar on in a moment, but uh, he's got a very exciting show for us this afternoon. And Catherine Burblesing is going to be joining him very shortly to discuss the latest controversies in education. It's sure to be uh, a very good back and forth. And uh, I'm hoping that many people are going to get involved as well and are going to be talking along with us, tweeting along with us. But before um, I let this show kick off, I just need to remind you that our sponsor at the moment is the Happy Confident Company. Now, this organisation has a wonderful bank of resources that you can use within your classroom. And for just 10 minutes a day, you can address well-being and mental health within your classroom. And it's there are so many lovely things. I know that another host, Brent Poland, is a big fan And if you want to find out more about this, you can go to www.happyconfident.com. Make sure you miss out that company bit when you go looking for that website. I can also see that Catherine is in and ready to go. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Omar. Off you go. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday Social. I welcome you to our chat today. Now, we've got a steaming cup of discourse brewing on a topic that gets the temperature rising in the education circles. It's the discourse divide, unpacking controversies in modern education. Now, we all know education isn't just about ABCs and one, two, threes, right? It's a dynamic field with diverse opinions, and sometimes these opinions can spark quite the the debate. From traditional teaching methods versus progressive education to discussions about strict discipline in schools. We're going to delve deep into some of these hot topics. We'll navigate the knowledge-rich curriculum approach and explore the intricacies of equality of opportunity in education. We've got our views on these and it's about time we aired them out. And who better to dive into these um, controversies with us than Catherine Burblesing. If you've been keeping up in the education scene, you'll recognise that name. Catherine has a bold voice, challenges, uh, challenging the status quo and championing high standards. She's the head of Makeda Community School in London, an institution known for its rigorous academic focus and discipline approach. Catherine view, Catherine's views have stirred the pot, sparking robust discussion in education community. And whether you agree with her or find yourself on the opposite side of the spectrum, one thing's for sure. Her perspective gets you thinking. Let's buckle up and dive in. Welcome, Catherine, to the show. Um, you just, uh, Catherine, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I just pressed yeah, the yeah. mic. Can you hear yes. me now? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just said thanks no, for having thanks, me. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on now. I just want to ask you a few questions to get you warmed up. Catherine. Can you tell us a bit about your background and experience in education, please? Yeah. I mean, I was a normal teacher, uh, taught at a few different schools. Um, I was a French teacher, uh, became a head of languages, then an assistant head, then a deputy head. Um, uh, People may remember me giving a speech at the Conservative Party conference in 2010. 
I went along a bit naively just thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll just say what problems I think there are in education. It got me in a bit of hot water. Um, and in the end, I had to resign from my school. I was told I'd never work in the state sector ever again. Um, and so I thought I'd try and set up a free school because it was the one way that I could get back to teaching, which is what I loved. And in particular, working with disadvantaged kids. You know, I mean, I suppose I could have gone and worked in the private sector, but I really didn't want to. So um took three and a half years, but uh, eventually we opened Michaela in 2014. And um, and then, uh, well, we've been running ever since. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Very brief. Now, we will be going on to some of those topics um, in a bit. But I wanted to ask you, this is, this is more, again, just a warm-up question. But if you had to choose an animal that best represents your teaching style, what would it be and why? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult um... one. <laughs> An animal? Yeah. Um, hmm. uh, I don't know. I really like giraffes. You know, if you're a giraffe, then you, you know, I'm always saying you need to be watching the kids <laughs> at all times. And with that long neck, you'd be able to, to uh, keep your eyes on them at all times. So like all of the classrooms at Michaela have a visualizer. Mm -hmm um deliberately because of course you can write with the visualizer and it can project onto the wall behind you while you are simultaneously watching the kids so never turn your back on them because you never know what they get up yeah, to fair <laughs> enough fair enough okay so uh, let's dive into our first subtopic that i've chosen today it's on traditional teaching methods versus progressive education now obviously education philosophies they they vary greatly and there's ongoing debate about what's the best methods that suit the students the best. On the one side, mm -hmm. you have tradi traditionalists who advocate for a teacher-centred approach, focusing on mm -hmm. knowledge, transmission and discipline. And on the other side, we have progressives pushing for a student-centred learning that prom uh, promotes creativity, critical thinking and freedom in the classroom. Now, you've been a voice uh, for the traditional teaching methods. Can you explain... Um, your preference for traditional teaching methods and what aspects do you find particularly effective? Yeah, so um, it's interesting the way you frame that. You say the progressives want uh, creativity. So do the traditionalists. We all want the same things. So we all want children to be creative, to think for themselves, to think independently. Um, we, we all want them to know stuff as well. So I don't think that the goals for the progressives and the traditionalists are different. Um, it's just that we disagree on the methods that are going to get us there. Um, so why do I believe in traditional teaching? Because I would argue that you cannot be creative or think independently about something that you don't know anything about. So if you were to take me, for example, um, I'm really creative with education. You know, I've done things very differently. I mean, not just in terms of knowledge, but like if you look at my school, there's a million things that we're doing differently. Um, and, you know, you introduced me as somebody who shakes things up and makes people think and so on. So I'm definitely uh, an out of the box thinker when it comes to education. I would argue that that's because I know education inside out. If you were to um, tell me to create a new car, for instance, that was creative and out of the box and different, uh, with its engine, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. And the reason I wouldn't be able to do it is because I don't know anything about cars. So it's really important that children get given lots of knowledge first. <laughs> um, and if they don't, 
then they're just not going to be able to be creative. Um, so I think that, unfortunately, the progressive way of doing things that prioritizes this idea of creativity uh, and deprioritizes knowledge, it means that children are left to be creative with very little. And, um, and I'm not saying the progressives don't want them to know anything. They're just deprioritizing it. And uh, the traditionalists pr prioritize it. And it, you would be amazed at how much knowledge you need in order to be creative and thinking for yourself. You know, so I know a hell of a lot. I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years, you know, so I know a lot about education. So I can really do it differently. Um, uh, it, it's very hard when you don't know something very well. So that is why I think it's really important to prioritize knowledge, uh, because the more knowledge they have, the more what you need to think about it like is it's like coat pegs in your head. You've got a series of coat pegs that you can build. And then the more knowledge you get, you can hang them on the different coat pegs and then you get more knowledge and you're hanging more stuff on those coat pegs. And you have a kind of schema in your head of, let's say, historical chronology or of uh, basic maths, including, you know, a, a number bonds, addition, subtraction, times tables, some some fundamentals in every every subject. So in English, you've got your grammar, you've got your vocabulary, uh, the ability to read and read fluently and so on. So once you've got those basics, you can then build those are your coat pegs. And then you're putting more knowledge on those coat pegs all of the time until eventually you've got your, your, your brain is stuffed with loads of knowledge about that thing. And you can be a lot more creative with it. So, you know, once you've mastered your vocab and your grammar and, and reading and so on, you're then able to read Macbeth and uh, understand it and really come to terms with the ideas that are going on in there and then write an essay on it that is out of the box. Um, if, on the other hand, you haven't been drilled in those basics, and when I say drilled, you know, people say drill and kill, oh my goodness, you know, don't want to do that. But the thing is, is that drilling, which is another word for just practicing, right? You get good at what you practice. So, um, you know, you ask me to go and, you know, win a, a, a basketball match against an NBA player. I'm not going to do it because I never play basketball. So I will lose uh, instantly. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, if you ask me to go, you know, uh, head to head with uh, somebody with a school and say, OK, well, let's see who gets the best results in the end. Um, I have a chance of doing well at that because, again, I, I know this and I practice it all of the time. It's what I live and breathe. So, again, uh, you see, it's not just prioritizing knowledge. It's what you do in the classroom. How do you teach and what do you expect the kids to do with that knowledge? And what I would say is that you want to practice it in different ways. So you might practice it through some pair work. You might practice it through class discussion. You might practice it through uh, some writing. And then you might practice it through the homework. But um, whatever it is, you're, all of that stuff you're doing, it's always on the same thing at first, right? You're, you're, you're drilling the thing that you want them to know. And then once you've drilled it and practiced it enough where you think these kids really know this stuff, you can then move on to the next thing um, and that you're just building all the time. So you, you, you've got your, your you lay your foundation 
then you build the next floor, then the next floor, then the next floor. If you jump to the third floor and you haven't got the second floor embedded, you're going to crash through down to the first floor, you see. So you just got to think of it like a building where you're just building all the time. Um, and you uh, you understand that. So you're and you're, you're checking for that understanding constantly to make sure. So when you're building the fourth floor, you bring back. Let me go back to the first floor. Let me see if they remember this stuff, because. You don't want your first or your second floor to fall away while you're building that fourth floor. Um, and so a combination of that uh, more direct instruction, explicit teaching that I've just described and thinking about how to retain that knowledge. What people often say is, you know, if it hasn't been committed to memory, it has not been learned. And when I say if it hasn't been committed it to memory, it hasn't been learned. We mustn't think by that, oh my goodness, it's only rote learning. That's what she's saying. I'm not saying that. There are some things that need to be rote learned, like your verb tables, like your times tables, like your historical dates. You want to sit down and you want to memorize them. You want to do, you know, je suis tu es, il est, elle est, nous sommes, vous êtes, ils sont, elles sont, boom, you know, and you do it over and over and over again, yeah. right? Yes, that needs to be drilled. Um, But in that sense, um, but it... Right. But the thing is, is that you you also need to commit to memory whole loads of stuff, which doesn't need rote learning necessarily, but you need to be able to remember it. So I haven't rote learned how to teach a lesson. Like, so all the stuff I've just spoken about, I didn't rote learn it. I didn't I didn't sit down before this um, podcast and go, OK, you got to remember, Catherine, drill this, drill that, say this, say that. I didn't do that. All of this stuff has now become second nature to me. So I'm just talking off the top of my head right now. Um, that's what you want for the kids, for this stuff to be on automatic for them. But to get it on automatic, they need to practice it. So the reason why I'm able to speak right now on automatic without thinking is because I'm drilling this daily. It's all I ever do. So you, you need to immerse them in this stuff, practice it with them, and then they will learn it. And you just keep coming back, checking for understanding, checking the first floor, checking the third floor and so on as you build and you keep building. And over that year, because your goal is for that year and frankly, for five, six, seven years, but um, your goal is to, to, to build up that knowledge in them so that when you get to the end of the year, they remember the stuff they were taught in September. Um, but you've got to have knowledge as your focus. If, on the other hand, you're thinking no, what I want is for them to uh, 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 have fun, for instance. There's a sense of, oh, I want them to be engaged in the lesson. So I'm going to make this fun in some kind of way or entertaining. You're, you're not focused on the knowledge. You're focused on how to make it entertaining, which is, which is understandable. I get it. I know why people do that. The reason they do that is because uh, kids can be tough <laughs> and, uh, they they don't necessarily give you their attention and they you know they, they they're naughty they they mess around or they look out the window or whatever it is and so the teacher then feels under pressure to make their uh lesson entertaining in order to grab the child's attention but what i would say to everybody listening is you got to believe that your subject is intrinsically interesting and the knowledge that you have in your head is something the children will find interesting if you give it to them. So give them the knowledge. Tell them what it is that you want them to know. Don't try and draw it out of them because if they don't have it in them, you have it in you. And your job as a teacher is to teach 
and to give them that knowledge. And they can then do something with that knowledge, have a class discussion, do a bit of pair work, do a bit of writing, whatever it is, bring them back, check to see if they've got it. You want to make sure everybody's got it in the classroom. Um, and then you can move to the next tiny little step that you take. It has to be tiny. Um, and you keep moving, keep checking back and keep moving forward. Um, and the kids will love you for it. They will. And they'll learn loads. And they'll be genuinely interested in an intrinsic fashion about what you're talking about, as opposed to going with the superficial choice of I need to entertain them and make this make this you know something fun as opposed to something deep and um yeah okay yeah sorry that was a very long answer wasn't it <laughs> that was very long um but just just for people that didn't quite catch that so traditionalists um advocate that there should be a, a teacher-centered approach whereas progressives um ab try and push for a more student um centered learning now just to kind of pull it back uh, one, one thing i do want to move on from this topic uh, but just to kind of push it back so Obviously, you said that, you know, we teach a little bit. We, we, the whole idea is we want them to gain that knowledge. And I, I have seen Daniel Willingham in Why um, Don't Students Like School? He's kind of spoken about the same things. But my, my, yes. my, you uh, now in opening that you said, look, we do live space for creativity. My question for you is where where in your lessons does the creative part take place? Because if, okay. if, if the whole aspect is, OK, I want them to learn a little. I teach a little bit. I come back and check for understanding. I teach a little bit, come back and check for understanding. Obviously, it's really important that they gain the knowledge they need to gain. But but mm. I guess a progressive would argue, where does that creativity come in then? Where's the chance for the students okay. to be creative? Yeah, so when they're writing something, when, when you get them to write something down, they then have knowledge, which they're then able to do what they want with at that point. I mean, that's what we mean by being creative. They're then constructing stuff themselves. That That is what it is to be creative. When uh, they're uh, doing a bit of pair work or when they're answering questions, you know, that you ask them, they're taking the knowledge that you've given them and they're putting it into their own words and they're making it their own. That is what it is to be creative. That is what it is to think for yourself. They, 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 but they're taking what you've given them and they're twisting it into their own language. They're, 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 they're analyzing it when they're talking to you or when they're writing something down. I mean, that's what it is to be creative. I mean, what what isn't gonna happen? Because I think sometimes people can be very romantic about these things and that they imagine. So I have a friend who's an art teacher and he says things like this to me. He'll say, yes, but what about your Picassos in there? What about them? I'm like, what do you mean the Picassos? Like, that's what I say to him. I said, what do you mean the Picassos in there? Well, like, I mean, we're, we're talking about kids who need to learn how to draw or to whatever it might be that, you know, you could name a famous mathematician names escape me at the moment to be able to do so. But um, uh, you could say, what about such and such a mathematician? What about them? Who's in the class? How are you going to make them into a, an amazing mathematician? Well, you, you make them into that by teaching them loads of stuff. It's the same with Picasso. Picasso had to learn how to draw. He wouldn't have become Picasso unless he'd learned how to draw. Mozart wouldn't have become Mozart unless he'd learned some scales on the piano. You know, like, you can't just skip that out, right? And, and Picasso becomes Picasso, like, way down the line. Like, it, we're trying to teach them the basics in history, geography, French, whatever it is. Um, so 
you can't become, I mean, think about it with the language, for instance, right? You can't suddenly become a fluent French speaker who is, you know, doing simultaneous translation for the prime minister um, until you've learned how to do some basic verbs and sentence structure and uh, learning loads of vocabulary. You've got to have that stuff drilled and you've got to learn it and remember it so you can then build on that. It becomes more obvious, I suppose, when talking about a language because, you know, you don't know any of that language. So you've got to learn lots of it until you can get to a point where you can become a real expert at it. Now, when you're being creative, so let's say you've learned a, a, a load of vocab about the house um, and then you want to write a little paragraph about the house. Well, you're then taking the vocabulary and the verbs and so on that you've learned and the structures. And then you're writing a paragraph that's your own that'll be a little bit different to the child's next to you. But it, so you're being creative with it, but you're using the knowledge that you were given by the teacher in order to do so. If the teacher hadn't given you much knowledge, then you would be restricted in how creative you could be because you wouldn't have access to the same amount of vocabulary and structures and so on that somebody in a classroom next door where knowledge was prioritized would have. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, I just want to push on to the next subtopic now. This okay. one I feel like yeah. is is one that does stir up some strong opinions um, and it sparks this fair share of debates. Now, it's on yeah. strict discipline in schools. So if I'm not mistaken, yes. you have come out yourself and said um, that you think Ofsted holds a, a low behavior standards on strictness. And obviously your school, Michaela Community School, is known for its strict discipline, discipline policy. Could you share with us what this policy involves and why you decided to implement it? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I tend to think that behaviour standards generally are just too low. Uh, I mean, that's not obviously the case in every school or in every classroom, but I'm just saying generally. Um, and... I think that's because, as you've just said, people don't like the idea of being strict. So it makes them feel deeply uncomfortable because they think that being strict is being mean. Um, I would say that being strict is is all about love. Um, you immerse the children in love and they love the fact that you are strict. Um, in fact, I would argue that most children want to be in stricter classrooms. Um, and that's because they know that that's where they're going to learn more. I think they uh, instinctively know that the teacher who um, expects more of them, uh, who is stricter with them, is going to get further with them. And in many senses, I would say, loves them enough to be strict with them. So I would argue that uh, when you're less strict, um, I, I'd say it's easier to be less strict. Uh, it's easier on the soul. So what I mean by that is, uh, you know, my teachers aren't naturally strict people. I, we have to make them that way. <laughs> and, um, uh, and everybody feels a little bit intimidated by that and thinks, oh, I don't want to give him a detention for not having a pen. I feel bad. Or, oh, you know, all he did was turn around in the class. I don't want to give him a demerit or a detention for that. I feel bad. It's a natural human reaction to feel bad for, for doing that. Um, I just say that you aren't being helpful to those kids when you do that. You're being more helpful to yourself. And what I mean by that is you feel bad in that moment, handing out the demerit of the detention. So you don't do it because you want to make yourself feel better. And um, 
I get it. You know, I've been there too. You, you feel bad and you don't want to feel bad. So you don't give the demerit of the detention. Uh, but I think you need to steel yourself against those emotions. You, you have to see the long-term effect on the child and bear in mind the fact that uh, they are depending on you to hold the line and to, and to insist that they be a better version of themselves because they can't do it on their own. They're children, and so they're looking to us to help them be better versions of themselves. And if you let it go they'll let it go. And that means they're just not going to be nicer people. They're not going to be uh, people who do their homework or who sit up and pay attention in lessons or who are kind to each other. Um, but if you hold them to account and discipline them for it, give them demerits and detentions and that sort of thing, while also giving them merits and praise when they get it right. Um, if you don't have a system like that, then the children are less likely to do the right thing. And what you want to do, it's like when I was talking about the knowledge, it's the same thing. You want to habitualize the behavior, just like you want to habitualize the knowledge. So when I was saying, um, you know, with the knowledge, you want to immerse them in it so it becomes something that's automatic so that they don't have to prepare. They just know it. They just know their times tables and they can just go two, four, six, eight, ten, et cetera, without thinking. Um because it's just become second nature to them. Same thing with the behavior. You want your children to turn up with a pen every day because it's become second nature. That they turn up on time because it's become second nature. That they smile at you, that they thank you, that they thank their friends and say please and thank you and so on. All that stuff that we all take for granted about ourselves. So we think to ourselves, it's normal to say please and thank you, but it's not. Somebody took the time to teach that to you. Somebody took the time when they held you the chocolate bar and you went to grab it and you were four years old, someone said, nah, uh, 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 what do you say, please? And then you said, please, mommy. And then she handed you the chocolate bar. And the next time she'd say, what do you say? Puh, puh, puh. And eventually you just start saying please on your own. You now say it, please and thank you without thinking about it. And that's because you've been taught uh, by somebody who in that moment of wanting to feel compassion and kindness, thought, oh, I'm not going to make her wait. I'm just going to hand her the chocolate bar because she looks so cute in this moment and I don't want her to feel bad because some kids at that point might start crying and you don't want your child to cry. But somebody said, you know what? Getting her to learn how to say please is more important than my feelings in this moment. And so I'm going to hold the line on this. So it's the same with the strictness. Now, in terms of us at school, well, we have silent corridors that I know we're well known for. I mean, they're not actually silent because people are saying good morning and good afternoon to each other. But um, but they're not chatting to each other. They're in single file walking in silence to their lessons. It means they get to their lessons in a minute and a half, despite the fact that we have very cramped corridors. Um, and it means that they're learning more. So those children who are 11 years old and have a chronological reading age of a seven-year-old, they're able to be exposed more to the lessons, to the reading, to the to the work that they need to do. And so they're going to make better progress. And why wouldn't we want that? It also means, of course, that there are no incidents to follow up in the corridors. Uh, the deputy heads aren't running around um, thinking, oh, gosh, so-and-so punched so-and-so, so-and-so ran there, so-and-so was screaming. You know, they're not having to deal with any of that. We're able to think about other things like, how are we going to better our teaching? How are we going to um, make sure that homework is more consistent across the school or whatever it is, you know, rather than thinking about those daily fights every day 
that um, you have to do when you're not super strict. So silent corridors in the lessons, you know, uh, one demerit uh, is essentially a warning, two demerits is a detention, three demerits and you're out of the lesson. Uh, now, it's rare that kids get taken out of lessons, but that's because they stop themselves at two. In fact, they tend to stop themselves at one. Um, and then that means they're absolutely perfect. So I always refer to the phrase, um, look after the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. It's a very similar thing here. You're, you're, you're looking after the tiny behaviors and you're making sure that the tiny behaviors you jump on. And it means the big behaviors never show themselves. Now, of course, I'm talking from a whole school perspective. When your whole school is doing that, the kids, the culture becomes one of behaving well. And so the kids just don't misbehave, really. And so you can just jump on the little things because there are only little things to jump on. Um, if you're on your own, in the sense of in your school, you're the only one doing this. It's much harder, obviously, but it can still be done. You just need to, when they come in, you set your rules. They know who's boss you are. You are leading the classroom, both in terms of the teaching. Like you said, it's teacher-led, but so is the behavior teacher-led. You are in charge. They are not in charge. And you let them know this by picking up on tiny things. Now, you need to tell them what you want first. So we have a boot camp uh, for seven days with year seven when they come in September. And we spend those seven days talking purely about how to become a Michaela kid. So this is how we do our homework. This is how we behave, etc. And um, so it's really important in your own classroom that you tell them, this is what I'm looking for. This is how you get it. You, they need to know what you want. How am I going to get my merits? How am I going to please the teacher? And then you, because the reason why you need to tell them what you want is because they then can choose. I'm either going to disobey what the teachers told me to do, or I'm going to obey what the teacher has told me to do. I'm going to get a merit or I'm going to get a demerit. And I have that choice. So the key thing to remember there is that children have agency and they really do. They have agency. Often I think we talk about children as if they don't have agency. They do. Now, some people will say, yes, but what about the kids with special needs? Well, clearly you don't ask children to do things they cannot do. Right. So you have to make that choice. You know, uh, we have a lift, for instance, in the school. Uh, we have seven floors. Um, we don't ask the children who are disabled physically in some way to climb the stairs. We allow them to use the lift. But that doesn't mean that we allow everybody to use the lift. We only let the children who can't climb the stairs use the lift. So it's the same thing when it comes to any kind of special need. You need to make the judgment as to whether or not the child can do what you're asking them to do. And if they can, then and they choose not to, then you punish them for it because they have agency. If they cannot do it, then obviously you wouldn't punish them for that. Um, so and you need to make that decision about what that child is capable of. But I would just warn everybody, you know, a little warning bell, which is just that too often I would say we hold our standards too low for children in particular for, with special needs. Um, and that's because it's human nature to think, oh, this child has a need, therefore I can't expect very much of him. Just be wary of that tendency, right? Now, be wary of it, but at the same time, you don't want to ask them to do things they cannot do. So you've got to find that sweet spot where you're able to push your children with special needs while not asking them to do things that they're not able um, to do. Thank, thank you for that um, insight. So, again, my question was on, on the policies. I just want to take a moment, sorry, just to quickly interrupt and say that this show is brought to you in partnership with the Happy Confident Company who provide clinically approved, ready-to-go, 
well-being and mental health programs to help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day. Visit www.happyconfident.com to find out more. Now, guys, I also want to let you know that um, you're more than welcome to join join this conversation as a speaker if you so wish and you have questions to ask. Now, um, just going back, my question was on policies. So I've, I've written down some policies that, that I took took from what you were just saying. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of these. Um, but you have demerits, right? One, two, three. And on the third one, they're removed from the class. Um, it, mm-hmm. the, the students get a detention if they don't have a pen, um, if they if they turn yeah. around in the classroom. Well, it would depend on when they turn. So if they turned around, the first thing they did wrong, they get a demerit. Yep. And then the second time they okay. would get a detention. Okay. And, and, and they receive um, de- uh, detentions if they aren't silent in, silent in the corridors? Yeah, if they were to talk in the corridor. Well... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that well, it would depend. It might be just a demerit okay. or a straight a demerit. Um, so, uh, just, just quickly clarify on that. Sorry. Um, so the demerit in the corridor. Um, how's that kept track of? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I mean, we have uh, this, we use Sixth Domain's uh, reward system, which I would highly recommend. Um, it because it's just a behavior module. I would say that a lot of the MISs, uh, you know, people use, you know, a whole MIS for everything, assessment and 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 everything. Uh, I would say that you want something that is just on behavior because then um, you'll have pro- you'll likely have fewer clicks. It will be more adaptive to what you do. It'll be more flexible. So that's what we okay. find. Uh, teachers would uh, log the uh, demerit of detention on their phones. Um, so it would be done immediately. Um, and so we have, you know, our teachers wander around with their phones all the time, uh, doing things on their phones immediately. Uh, so we don't lose, you know, you don't forget it. And it, it, it just happens. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that, for clearing that up. Now, my, my question kind of comes to this. You have, so you have a, a year seven boot camp, which takes seven days for children to be mm-hmm. Michaela children um, or Michaela mm-hmm. pupils. Um, my question, and obviously it's very good because you, you've created a culture shift but uh, in your school, which, which allows for students to behave well. But my question for you is mm-hmm. this, um, and this is coming from what I believe some critiques might have. Do you think that in doing so, in making students almost, uh, and this, I'm, I don't want to like be fussed in my words here if you want, but in almost being robotic, are you taking away and restricting their freedoms? Is, is that, a, is that a, what would you say, sorry, to critiques that kind of make that argument? Yeah. Okay. So do you think you and I are being robotic with each other right no, now? No, we're not being robotic. No. So, you know, you speak and then I speak and you speak, although I'm obviously speaking more <laughs> than you. But, uh, um, you know, you we, we leave each other time for the other one to speak. Uh, we we respond to each other. We laugh. We you know if we were talking to each other one on one, we'd look at each other. Uh, there are various behaviors that you and I have learned over the years. Um, I don't think that those behaviors are robotic. It makes us polite. It makes us into nice people. Um, it makes us people who can sit on a chair, who can uh, just behave normally like a normal human being. So. I just reject the idea that that's being robotic. I think that's what it is to be a nice human being and that we want our children to be nice human beings because the alternative is kids falling off their chairs, swinging on their chairs, not looking at you when they talk to you, being rude to you, hands in pockets, slouching all over the place. 
um, rolling their eyes, touching their teeth. I mean, you, that's not not being a robot. That's just being rude. So um, I don't think all that stuff makes you ro into that's, a robot. It just makes you into a nice okay, person. Okay, that's fair enough. I guess for the classroom setting, that, that could be a fair argument. But, you know, um, in terms of the silent corridors, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be walking down the corridors silently. Um, that Some people might argue that that might be a bit too extreme. What would you say it, to those people? Okay, so... Not everybody has to have silent corridors. Uh, it's true that if you have a selective intake uh, and your children are not running around screaming and, you know, beating each other up and so on and so forth, then you probably don't need to have silent corridors, in which case, fine. I mean, I'm not saying everybody has to have silent corridors. Uh, certainly everywhere I've always worked, I've always worked in the inner city, uh, silent corridors would be a huge advantage because... Otherwise, kids get beaten up, they get bullied, they get chased. There's loads of screaming and shouting. Horrible things happen in the corridors. And so, well, you can have that or you can have silent corridors. Now, you have to choose. Um, like, I think it's better to have silent corridors than it is to have chaotic corridors. Now, you might then say to me, but you don't have to have chaotic corridors. You can have something in between. Um, well, great. If you can have something in between, then do it. Uh, I suggest that you probably need a selective intake to have that sem somewhat in between stage um, where everybody gets to their lessons on time, where people aren't left in the toilets, where people aren't um, where that corridor time is not disrupting lesson time. If you could say to me that your corridor time, you have no incidents that ever happen, that you that the children move very quickly and quietly, you know, no, so they're not quiet, but they are, you know, speaking at low voices and moving very quickly to their lessons. And they all get there at the same time. And the lesson is able to start beautifully without any disruptions. Um, if you can tell me that and assure me of that, well, great. Uh, then don't have silent corridors. I I'm having silent corridors because I know what would happen if we didn't have silent corridors. <laughs> that might not be necessary for you. The key point is, are your corridors disrupting your lessons? Are, you, are the beginnings of your lessons not as calm as they could be because you have chaotic corridors? And if that's the case, then it's better to have silent corridors. Uh, if it's not the case, then you don't need silent corridors, is what I'd say. The other point I'd also make just to say is that people always talk about these corridors as if this is the time where children have their moments of brilliance because they're all chatting about Aristotle. And as they walk down the corridor, they suddenly have a moment of brilliance where they think, that is the thing that's going to change my lesson in history today. I'm gonna go in and say to Sir how you know XYZ happened with Churchill once, and he's going to say to me, what brilliant creativity. And had I not had that moment of chatter in the corridor, then I would never have been able to, to, to impress Sir in the way that I did. The thing is, I don't think that's what's going on in the corridors. Maybe it is in some corridors. I personally have never seen it. I think that often corridor time is a waste of time where children are misbehaving and that if you can reduce that corridor time to something minimal, like a minute and a half or two minutes, you are ensuring that you have more lesson time, more learning time, especially for those kids who are the most disadvantaged, who um, are behind in their chronological reading age, et cetera, et cetera. 
those are the ones who will thank you in the end. And when they leave your school at 16, 18, they're able to say, wow, I'm numerate, I'm literate, I'm going to go off and do something with my life because I didn't waste all that time in the corridor. Okay, thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, now, I'm I'm from a school, uh, my school's called Cumberland Community School, and in our school we do um, have policies um, like silent corridor, at least quiet corridors at times. Um, when Ofsted come and regulated our school recently, um, they said to us that students, um, they, they're not able to self-regulate their own behaviour, and they marked us down. They said our behaviour was too good. Um, what comments would you make on a situation? Have, sorry, my question is, have they done the same to you uh, in, in your offset inspection at Michaela and what, what are your comments on that situation? No, they didn't. Um, now, I mean, I have my issues with Ofsted uh, and I have my issues with Ofsted because, look, Ofsted under Amanda Spielman, I think she's done a brilliant job and it couldn't be better, right? So this is not an attack on her. I think she's a fantastic woman. Um, but it's just the nature of an inspectorate. The problem is you obviously have thousands of inspectors and to a certain extent, you are um, open to the whims of that particular lead inspector. Um, and when I hear things like what you just said, uh, I, it worries me. Now, of course, I don't know what you mean when you say that they that Ofsted inspectors said that they couldn't self-regulate. I mean, what can you tell me a bit more? What what, what were they meaning? So, because um, there was teachers at, on the corridors that were giving detentions in, in situations, they were making sure there was on the left-hand side in a single file. Um, they said that the uh, the students weren't able to like act in their own accord, and they uh, they I think the question they asked was what would happen if you removed the uh, the teachers from the corridors? Would the students still be walking on the left hand side in a single file, or would it all turn into chaos? And so, um, in that regard, is it the teachers that are enforcing this and making the students act like this, or are the students just well behaved themselves? Right. Um, now, the thing is, is that uh, that will always be the case um, when you are starting off with something. So if you are starting off with silent corridors uh, and teachers giving out detentions, demerits and so on in the corridors and making sure that things are the right way, uh, it's the detentions and the demerits that stop the kids from talking. Right. Um but it's true that you want to be able to move beyond that. So I remember once um, a teacher visiting uh, from Mossbourne, actually, <laughs> and, um, and Mossbourne has silent corridors, etc. Right. I mean, that's where we got the idea from. And um, and he said, he said, oh, it's really interesting because I was in the staircase and uh, all the kids were going by and they were in silence and there were no teachers around. And uh, and they were just all in silence and they just kept going. And um, I said, what? I said, what do you mean there were no teachers around? And he said, yeah, I walked up the stairs and then there were no teachers there. And I said, well, there should have been teachers there. And, and he, he kind of put his hand over his mouth and went, oh my goodness, I don't want to get anybody into trouble. <laughs> and I said, look, don't worry about it, it's fine. But it was funny because for whatever reason, you know, teachers hadn't showed up that, at that instant. And so the kids were just moving on their own. And what was interesting from my perspective was that um, they were still in silence. And um, I often see it, actually. They will queue up uh, to get into an IT room or whatever it is, uh, and there's no teacher there. And they all come and stand there, and they're just standing there in silence. 
And every time I see that, that's particularly enjoyable for me because um, whenever I see that, I always think, oh, I love this place. <laughs> and the reason why I think that is because I think, look, they're doing it on their own, right? They, it has been so habitualized in them that they just go and they stand there and they wait. And um, so, and that I think is lovely. Now, uh, that wouldn't happen right at the start, obviously. It takes a while before you habitualize that and then everybody just does that. So it's the same with the teachers. The teachers would whisper very quietly in the corridors if they had to, you know. Uh, we're all saying good morning and good afternoon to each other, but we wouldn't have long discussions in the corridor, for instance. It's not something that we would do. And all of us have just been habituated to that. So we would all know, oh, let's go into a classroom. Um, it's, uh, I, I like, I don't even, like, it's just so part of who we are. We don't question it. So, um, and maybe that's what the inspectors are saying. You need to be doing this for longer until it gets to the point where they're habituated. But what I worry is that the inspector doesn't realize that because uh, people, it's this idea of habit, right? How do you habitualize behavior in children? By drilling it. <laughs> and then it just becomes second nature. It, it, go, it becomes automatic to you. So, and it... it the reason why it's more difficult for one teacher to do that in his own classroom is because when everybody's doing the same thing across all classrooms, it's just what we all do. So, I mean, I, you know, if I think about it, I mean, I'm only just thinking about this now for the first time, okay? Uh, when I go and watch um, a, a candidate who's come to teach, a, you know, they've come for an interview and they'll teach half a lesson or something and I'll go up and I'll uh, watch them uh, I'll then come out with the head of department. So th there's the teacher in there whose class it is. There's the candidate who's teaching and then the head of department's in there and watching. I come in, I watch for five minutes and then I will t tell, I'll motion to the head of department, come with me and we'll come out of the classroom and leave the two, the, the candidate and the teacher in there. And we'll come out to just have a quick word about what we thought before I go back downstairs. We would never have that conversation in the corridor, ever. Like we walk up and down until we find a classroom and then we go into that classroom and we shut the door. Now, I haven't actually thought about this until right now, which is that, why do we do that? Well, because we just are in the habit of people not talking in the corridors. <laughs> so um, it just becomes part of who you are in the end. Like who, who you are as a person, who you are as a school, you know, what you are as a school. Um, so yeah, look, I don't know what those officer inspectors meant. If they meant it's bad to discipline kids, it's bad to, uh, give out demerits in the corridors and actually you should just let them run free and push each other around. Then that's crazy. If that's what they meant, I don't know what they meant. The reason why I think that's crazy is because I don't think it benefits kids. You want kids to have nice corridors, which they can move through quickly to, to get to their classrooms. I mean, the corridor, remember, isn't the focus of school. You don't go to school and think, I can't wait till I get into that corridor today. You know, you know, it's your lessons that are meant to be your focus. So the corridor is just a means to get from lesson to lesson. And some schools, of course, understandably, make the decision to leave the children in one classroom and have the teachers move around the corridors and go to the kids. And the reason why they do this is because corridors can be such chaotic places. So people come up with different ways of trying to deal with the corridor issue because corridors are an issue. Um, 
uh, it, it, I just they're not the pl- they're, they're not the thing that we should focus on in the sense that that's not what school's about. School's about your lessons and about break time and about lunch time, but it's not about the corridor time. Yep. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, I, I don't want to spend too much longer on 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 strictness in schools, uh, so strict discipline. But I do want to ask one more question about this because it does interest me. Question is this: mm-hmm. um, In your school, am I right to believe that um, smartphones are banned and they're only allowed feature phones? Is that true? Uh, yeah. Well, um, so look, our rule on phones is: if we hear it or we see it, we take it. So if they have a phone that we never hear or see, I, I mean, I actually have no idea who has a smartphone yeah. in that sense in their mm-hmm. bags because we don't, if we don't hear it, we don't see it. Fine. If it were to beep, we take it. And if we take it, we may keep it. I mean, any, I suppose it could be anywhere from two weeks to six weeks under normal circumstances. However, if it's in the last two weeks of the half term, then you wouldn't get it back at the end of that half term. You wouldn't get it back until the next half term, which would make it, more like eight or nine weeks. And if, for instance, we were to confiscate it on the 15th of July, you wouldn't get it back until the end of October. So it kind of depends on when. But the, everybody knows the rules. Uh, they're very clear on it. Um, because we are so excessive in terms of how long we'll keep it for, um, the, you never see, I mean, you never see phones, ever. Like no child would ever take their phone out. The only time that we end up confiscating phones is if it beeps by accident because they forgot to turn it off and then it was in their bag and then it ends up beeping. Uh, but even that is very rare. Very, very rare. We just never see phones. But the the, the brick phone that you're talking about, that's because we try and strongly encourage parents not to okay. give them smartphones all at right, all. So, and then we say, get a brick phone and then you can, you can ring them, you can text them. So when they're going home, if you want to keep in touch with them, it's easy. So it's convenient, but um, don't get them a smartphone because smartphones are the devil. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we all know they're the devil for us, yeah. right? Like they take up all your time. You're on social media. You know, people lock them in boxes when they go home. I know some members of my senior team have got locked boxes at home, which they lock their phones in so they don't go on them. I mean, look, it's bad enough for adults. For kids, it, it kills your kid. It kills their concentration. It can't, it can't compete with, you know, a book can't compete with a phone. A book is black and white and flat. A phone has loads of colors um, and loads of explosions and whatever, yeah. various things on it, pop-ups. The social media, my uh. goodness. <laughs> I mean, you want to kill your kid, just put them on social yeah. media. Like, they meet gang members. They meet pedophiles. They meet all sorts of undesirables. I mean, and plus, the big problem with the phone is that it's not supervised. So my point is unsupervised access to the internet is going to kill your kid. Don't give it to them. Um, if, if they're on the computer, you need to watch the screen on the phone. Well, then you, you they're outside with the phone. So do not give them a smartphone. My advice to parents is you don't want to give them a smartphone until they're 16. I would even actually extend it to 18. Um, the fact of the matter is that Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, all those big tech CEOs in California, they don't give their children phones. Uh, and if they do, they didn't put data on it. Um, they know something we don't know. You know, I'd say to everybody to watch Social Dilemma on um, Netflix. I was so proud because once one of the te- one of the te- one of the parents, sorry, on um, at our school, he worked at the tube station, and um, I was once going home, and he came up to me saying, "Miss Purple Singh, Miss Purple Singh." said i've seen this film on netflix they say everything you've been telling us it's called social dilemma and i hadn't watched it at that point and so i went and watched it because of him and it's true 
they do say everything I'd been saying. And what was so nice was that he he listened to me. You know, he knew what I was saying. So I'm always warning the parents. I do lots of stuff with parents on this, trying to convince them not to give their child a phone. And because we do this quite well, and because we, you know, have really good behavior and all that, you can really see the difference between kids who have smartphones and kids yeah. who don't. Like kids who don't have smartphones rise to the top set. And the kids who are on the phones all the time descend. I mean, honestly, like I, this is only anecdotal that I can tell you. I don't have data on it, but I am telling you, those phones break their brains. And the kids who don't have phones, my goodness, they rise from the fourth set up to the top set. It's amazing. Okay, thank you for that. I, a personal note, um, I am a big advocate of habits and I'm reading a book right now called Deep Work. And in that book, it does talk about timetabling in when you use the internet. I guess one argument against that, I do want to move on from phones, but I'm just going to make the point is, is, you know, when students, maybe they don't get phones from a young age, they might struggle with the self-control maybe later on. I don't know, that could be a possible argument, but I don't want to, I want to move on from, from that conversation. Uh, we do have some comments here. Um, we have um, uh, someone's written here, from safeguarding point of view, are students allowed to leave, sorry, are schools allowed to leave students to self-regulate in corridors without an adult being uh, present or or supervised i think that's on the same idea of the ofsted thing that we was talking about and we have tom rogers here who said i think it meant ofsted said or implemented we don't believe these children will behave if you take the adults away and therefore they haven't learned learned self-regulate or be independent so it's on the same kind of topic as what you were saying there i want to move on though because um we haven't got much longer left and there are some much more controversial topics um to come well in my opinion um we have obviously uh if i'm not mistaken you're you uh you categorize yourself as a small c conservative uh, which Mm -hmm. references policies on traditional views um and is it it measured gratitudinal change over radical reform and you did mention before that you was at the Conservative Party conference where you made a speech in 2010. I know you've made one more recently, which mm-hmm. I will get on to later on as well. You mm-hmm. made a speech and some quotes from that speech is that you said the system is broken because it keeps poor children poor. That they're in mm-hmm. the classrooms of schools you've taught in at that time. Um, chaos reigned. Um, and you said the well-meaning liberal will say, well... They can't do homework because their home life is too chaotic. And as a result, the schools have given up on these children. My question to you is, can you take us back to 2010, the conference part, uh, the, sorry, the Conservative Party conference, and explain what motivated you to deliver that speech? Yeah, I'm not sure I said the thing about homework that you just said, it, but, it um, might, it might be, and that the schools have given yeah, up on them. That wrong. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm speaking, as you say, the system is broken. I was talking about the system. So, you know, schools, look, I'm not blaming schools. You know, I get schools are in an impossible situation. Neither am I blaming teachers. I understand why they're in the position they're in and we're all trying to survive. So it's the system that's broken. And so when Ofsted say to you, uh, you shouldn't regulate the behavior of kids in the corridor, well, the system is broken. 
right? Um, we're told to do the wrong things. Um, we're made to feel bad for doing the right things. Uh, look at the attacks that I get. I get attacked all the time. Like, and nobody wants to be me. I mean, who the hell wants to be attacked constantly for doing what I believe are the right things? So there's something wrong with the system. There's nothing wrong with our schools or our teachers. They are trying their absolute best in very, very difficult circumstances. So, um, and, and we're, we're, we're let down by society. We're let down by families, by parents. And when I say that, what I mean by that is... Um, people, just everybody, right? It, and, and, and then we expect schools to, to go against the grain in order to do things properly. And that's not right. It, it, and so, um, no, I, I, the, the business, look, in the end, some of us may end up giving up, but that's not for lack of trying. Um, it's because we're having to fight the system and we're having to fight the culture, the overarching culture in our society. So why did I speak at the Conservative Party conference? Well, I was just a bit of an idiot, wasn't I? I mean, <laughs> um, I was asked to go. Look, I had been writing this blog for years called To Miss With Love after Sidney Poitier's To Sir With Love. And um, uh, I used to write anonymously and uh, I would write stories about how little Johnny had had his money stolen or whatever it was. And um, it was cathartic because I was frustrated about things that were happening in the school system that I thought shouldn't be happening. And um Penguin got in touch and said, hey, would you turn, turn this into a book? I said, no, I can't say this sort of thing out loud. They said, look, we'll do it anonymously. I said, okay, fine. If we can do it anonymously, then great, let's do that. So uh, we started doing some work on that to make it anonymous, blah, blah, blah. And then the, my publisher, she knew Michael Gove. And I was always telling her what was wrong with the school system. And she said, look, you got to go and tell your ideas to Michael Gove. So I said, okay, I'll go and do that. So I was just a bit naive. I went along with my long list of things that I thought needed to change and said, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then thought I would go back home. He said, would you like to come and speak to our, at our conference? I said, well, what do you mean your conference? Because I mean, I wasn't, I was, didn't really know about political conferences. I mean, I, I, you know, I just wasn't, I was just a bit naive. And he said, come and speak. And I said, okay, I can maybe, but I can't because I can't say who I am. And, um, and he said, well, you know, you don't have to give your name. And I thought, OK, well, I don't have to give my name. So and I knew it was going to be aired on BBC Parliament. But who the hell watches BBC Parliament? Right. And I mean, this sounds idiotic now because we're all online and so on. But in those days, there was no Instagram and no Twitter and so on. People weren't online in the way that they are now. But even then, it was still quite naive. But um and so I thought nobody watches BBC Parliament. It'll get aired. And nobody will see it. And I'll say the things that need to be said and then I'll go home. Of course, I was just a bit dumb because, frankly, obviously, if it's recorded, then it can be replayed. <laughs> that, was the, that was the point that I missed, which is that, Catherine, if they record it, it can be replayed. So um, I just thought it'll get aired and that'll be the end. So in the end, actually, that year, my speech was watched more than the then Prime Minister David Cameron's. Um, wow. So that's when I got into a lot of trouble, right, because it can be replayed. So uh that, but I went because I just thought, yeah, I'll go and I'll tell them what's wrong and then they'll go away and fix it. I Now, me, who I am now, I look back at who I was then and just think, how could you have been so yeah. dumb? <laughs> but, but that's My next question I was, was so actually going to be, in retrospect, do you believe your speech um, had the impact that you intended? And I guess you've kind of answered that in that like kind of no, because... Um, well, actually, actually, yeah. Do you think, in retrospect, the speech had the impact you intended or do you think it just put a lot of heat on yourself? I don't know. It's hard to say, isn't it? 
I mean, look, I think Michael Gove did great things for the education system. Um, I don't know. Did my speech uh, and, and what I told him uh, inspire him? I have no idea. Um, but I, I think he did. I know a lot of people will disagree with me about that. But, you know, before Michael Gove came along, we couldn't check their bags for knives. Before Michael Gove came along, we couldn't give a detention without giving 24-hour notice. Now, you would write it down in their diaries. And then they would come back the next day, which is crazy because children react to immediate sanctions. Now, some teachers were clever and would would force them to stay. But what you were doing was actually illegal. You weren't allowed there. There were so many things that I think Michael Gove did to empower us as teachers and empower head teachers actually around exclusions and so on. So, like, I, I know people don't like him, but I think uh, you know, if you, you actually have a one to one discussion with me on that. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that we don't have time for, but I, I think he did. A gr- I think he did great things for the education. Okay, system. Fair enough. Um, let's move on to more recent, a more recent topic. Um, so you was a member of the Social Mobility Commission. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. so the main aim for those people that don't know is this a advisory, uh, advisory public body. It is at the forefront of advocating for social mobility in the UK. You've in in. January 2023, you stepped down as chair of, of this commission because you is, is am I correct in believing, uh, so thinking that you believed that the, they were doing more harm than good and you, you expressed that concern. Um, could you share your experiences at the commission? Did I? I never said yeah, that. Newspapers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I never said that. Um, they're doing lots of good. They're doing great things. And Alan Francis, who was my deputy, he's absolutely brilliant man. He runs an FE college up in Oldham. He's fantastic. And they're doing really good work. Um, and frankly, partly one of the reasons why I stepped down was that I knew they would continue to do brilliant work because um, Alan is so fantastic. He can do it without me. So uh, that that was part of the reason I knew I, ha- I could hand over. It, was, it would be in good hands. Um, the reason I gave was because... I just felt a little bit frustrated because I felt I couldn't say the things that I wanted to say. Um, I'm quite outspoken. I think that our um, society needs outspoken people. Uh, I I feel I have a duty to continue to be outspoken. And I felt uh, my hands were tied a bit in that position. People would say to me, you're not allowed to say that as chair of the Social Mobility Commission. And and I took their point. I don't think they were necessarily wrong about that. Um, And so I then felt, gosh, well, I can't say stuff that I want to say and that I need to say, I think, in order to help us all be better at whatever it is. Not because I'm necessarily right, but because I say things that other people won't necessarily say and i think all functioning democracies need that um so i i felt in a way i might have been not being able to do as much good as i could have if i was not the chair of the social mobility Mm -hmm. commission and i knew that the commission would continue doing brilliant work under alan and that would then free me to be able to be more outspoken so yeah that's it okay so i've got another another point here so please correct me if this is wrong again this has come from newspapers so my sources are newspapers so it could be incorrect it says that you've expressed um views on gender disparity in stem fields especially why fewer girls choose physics at a level could you elaborate on this oh yeah so yeah that was because i mean again you know you had this conversation look the fact of the matter is yes it's true that fewer girls will choose uh 
physics or maths, et cetera, um, at A-level than boys do. And there are lots of reasons for this. Um, now, I spent 20 minutes talking about all the social reasons. Of course, nobody ever mentions the 20 minutes that I spent talking about all the social reasons. They don't necessarily have enough ro role models. They don't see themselves in doing it because, you know, they think that women shouldn't do those kinds of subjects. Um, there, there are all kinds of cultural and social reasons that prevent them from doing that. And obviously, schools should go to great lengths to make sure that uh, we address those issues. You can have speakers coming in. Uh, you can uh, talk about the fact that girls should choose maths and science and so on. Um, and they just asked me specifically about my school. And so I was saying that uh, uh, we, you know, fewer girls took physics. We were speaking specifically about physics than boys at my school. The other reason, actually, that I haven't mentioned the reason why is because uh, there are fewer boys that take history and French and English and so on. Boys tend to uh, move towards the sciences and the maths. Uh, and so it's not just that girls don't, it's that boys also don't tend to choose English history, etc. Um, and we were talking about yeah. physics. Uh, we have a very small physics class. I mean, essentially, if you were to add in if that, when I was talking in that particular time, if you'd added in an extra two girls into my physics class, A-level class, then we would have had equal numbers. So we're talking very small numbers of children here. Um, at the time, my entire physics department was female. All of my physics teachers were women, not men. So not only that, but we have lots of different speakers coming in and talking to the kids. And we talk to the girls about the variety of subjects that they might want to do. So um, I feel that we are very much addressing those cultural issues. So um, now you might insist, unless you have 50% of kids, of girls and boys in every subject, then you've got a problem. But I don't think that's a problem. Now, perhaps that's a controversial thing to say, but I don't think it's a problem if you do not have a, an equal gender divide in every single one of your classes. Um, sometimes there are just, kids don't want to do that. I mean, I, and, and I back our girls. If they don't want to take physics, I'm not going to make them take physics just so I can have a 50-50 divide. So... That, those are my opinions. My opinions are such that, yes, sometimes girls don't want to take physics and it's genuinely what they don't want to do. It's not because of a cultural issue. Sometimes it is because of a cultural issue. Sometimes it isn't. Um, yeah. And, and that's my point. Uh, that's so my just, point. To, just to interrupt here again, to let you... Um to say that this show is brought to you in partnership with the Happy Confident Company who provide clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health programs to help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day. Visit www.happyconfident.com to find out more. Now, on that same topic, um, you said that uh, the, all teachers in your school are they're female physics teachers. Was this a purpose? Was this on purpose? Did you hire those teachers? Because no. that way it just best person. No, at that time, that just so happened okay. to be the case. No, I didn't deliver. But it's that. something that you believe um, prom uh, promotes positive role models in those STEM fields. Oh, I see. Yeah, so sure. Um, it, it's good if you can have uh, female teachers in those roles. Um, it, it's same thing when it comes to the race issue. You know, it's always a nice to have to have a, a more diverse workforce. Um, but it's a nice to have. Sometimes you can't get it. I mean, look, there are. Uh, physics, there are science departments where 
you know, three quarters of your science teachers are supply. I don't think head teachers are in the very, uh, you know, privileged position of being able to say, well, I'm going to hire more female physics mm. teachers this yeah. year. I mean, they're just looking for anybody who can teach physics. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I want to move on to, um, we do have comments coming in, but I'll come back to them just at the very end. I'll save about five, ten minutes for that. Um, again, I just want to let everyone know if you're listening today, you could always join the conversation if you want, if you had questions to pose. Um I'm going to move on to your most recent speech at the National Conservative Conference. This was very recent. In that speech, mm. you spoke about the importance of national identity. You spoke about schools and culture. You spoke about the role of private schools, small c conservatism, influence of wokeism. And I want to just stop there. So um, you have spoken about the influence of, of, of wokeism. Firstly, mm -hmm. can, you, can you just define for our listeners what wokeism is and why it might be a problem as yeah. an ideology yeah so it used to be the case that the left would see things uh through the prism of rich and poor uh and that the rich man was kind of oppressing the poor man and you wanted to liberate poor people uh wokeism is a, a, a shift from that and it's seeing the world through the the the, the prism of identity so uh you might identify as gay or as black or as a woman or whatever it is. And there is a sense of, well, oppression that comes with that identity. Um, and that that's the, those are the glasses that you wear when looking at the world. So that, that is what I would say is wokeism. And therefore, uh, people might want to decolonize their curriculum, for instance. That, I would say, is a more woke idea um, because they want to, uh, people talk about deconstructing whiteness out of history, for instance, out of their history curriculum, or not wanting to teach dead white men, for instance. These are uh, woke ideas, okay? Uh, they're not the standard left way of seeing things, more Marxist way of seeing things that you might have found 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and so people weren't 20 years ago necessarily talking about deconstructing whiteness out of the yeah. history curriculum. They're doing that now because things are more woke. Um, and I find it problematic. However, that doesn't mean that uh, you don't want to look at your history curriculum at all with regard to having a diverse hat on. So uh, the thing is, is that I always say that there's um, a, a kernel of truth in all of these more leftist positions. So I don't consider myself to be so much on the left, but I do think there's always a kernel of truth in all of those leftist positions. And the kernel of truth in this woke position, let's say around whiteness in the history curriculum, is that once upon a time, it was the case that uh, the way history was taught was Britain is this great nation. Uh, it always did good things. Colonialism was a wonderful thing. Um, and you you just didn't talk about the bad things, perhaps, that Britain did. Uh, and that th those were bad times, okay? <laughs> that was wrong. And it was good to change from that. Uh, it was good to uh, talk about, uh, I don't know, Britain's history in India, for instance, or the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya, and so on, right? Now, so th these, these are good things to teach uh, and to explain that Britain behaved badly in various ways. That didn't used to happen. So if that's what we mean when we say deconstructing whiteness out of the curriculum, then that's good. 
but I don't think that's what we mean, right? Um, and I think it's good to do the things that I've just said, like teach the Mau Mau Rebellion, for instance. Um, uh, what, where I think we go wrong nowadays is that we uh, are then ashamed of anything white, right? And if it's a dead white man, we're man, we're uncomfortable with the fact that he's a dead white man because he's a white man. I always say, you know, we're always going on about him, them being white men, when the most important thing about them is that they're dead. It's not that they're white men. It's the dead aspect that we need to be valuing. So Shakespeare has been influencing literature for 400 years. We teach him because of his influence. Um, not because he's a, a, a dead, not because he's a white man, but because he's dead and he's been dead for a long time. So I think that sometimes the debate um, can become uh, polarized and can become, uh, it can focus on the wrong things. And when I say woke, I'm, that, I'm being critical of the, 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 the way of thinking that prevents nuance, that prevents us looking at a curriculum and teaching it very much from British history, uh, national identity, like you say, we are British together and we want to learn our history, but we want to make sure that that history is complex so that we talk about the hundreds of thousands of Caribbean soldiers that gave their lives in the Second World War and the million Indian soldiers that did the same, but that we also value the fact that we are British and that we learn British history. And that combined approach when I spoke at that speech, I spoke about, yes, the idea of national identity, that all children are British, that if you are ethnic minority, that you are British and that we should have the right to call ourselves British, that we shouldn't be seen as Nigerian or Jamaican. Now, you may also have your family from Jamaica or Nigeria and so on, and that is great. But that when you rid ethnic minority children of the possibility of belonging to their country, you are actually letting them down. You are doing them a disservice. And these are the very children that often the left want to help. And what I'm saying is we're not helping them if they don't feel British. Because if you don't feel like you belong, and I'm the number one person to know this, because I've never felt like I belonged anywhere. Because my parents from the Caribbean, my mother is black, my father is Indian. I grew up in Canada, I was born in New Zealand, and I then came here at the age of 15. And I never belonged anywhere. And then at some point, Britain took me in. And when I say took me in, I remember it was the World Cup, we were fighting, we were fighting, I mean, we were playing in, a, in, in, in Japan, in Osaka, I think. And it was 2001 or two or something like that. And, um, and I remember it was on at strange times. We were in the staff room and they'd, teachers came in. They'd maybe been watching it or something. I don't know. They came in and I looked up and I said, did we win? And I'll never forget that because I said, we, did we win? I was British, right? And to be British is such an extraordinary thing. And I, I hadn't been anything. And I was, I was British and I've been British ever since that moment. And it's something I'm proud of. And it's something that many white people take for granted. I think white people, they're just British and that's what it is. And they don't think about it. And then they poo poo the idea and they say, oh, you know, I hate the queen or whatever, or our king. Um, I, I hate royalty. I hate all of that. And, you know, fine. Everybody can think whatever they want, but they don't know what it isn't, what it is like not to belong. And I'm saying for ethnic minority children, you are giving them a leg up by letting them belong in the first place. Because when you belong to your country and you love your country, it is then that you can be most critical of it. I am massively critical of the British education system. So all I ever do is criticize yep. it, right? So it's not to say that it's perfect. Of course it's not perfect. 
but I love my country and I'm grateful to Britain because because I belong here and <laughs> we should all belong. And it's the one thing that we have in common, right? We you want if you want diversity to work, if you want multiculturalism to work, do it under the umbrella of Britishness. Because if everybody is different and we don't share anything in common, then we are not a community. We are we don't belong together. And Britishness brings us together and ensures that we can succeed and survive. And so, look, uh, it, that's why we sing God Save the King. I'm not, I, you think I care about royalty? I couldn't care less about royalty. You think I have plates and, and mugs with the queen's head and the king's head? I don't even, I don't know anything about them. I mean, I know there's William and Kate and like, you know, Harry. I mean, I, I don't know all the names of the royal members of the family. I have no idea. All I care about is them as a symbol for Britain. And I want our kids, so that's why we sing God Save the King. We sing Jerusalem. We sing, uh, you know, I vow to thee. The reason why we sing these things is because it brings us all together as one. And if you visit our school, you feel it. You feel the kids. We're, we're a family. It's Michaela. You know, we believe in something. And th I'm just saying it's, 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 a, it's an own goal when you don't do that, you know. And if you want to make your school stronger, Believe in your country. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that, Catherine. I've just got um, someone here that wants to speak. Um, Thomas Sowell, did you have a question for us? <laughs> well, obviously not yeah. Thomas Sowell. <laughs> yeah, this, somebody else. <laughs> this is uh, Alan Wolin, and I, I call oh. my handle the, the genius of Thomas Sowell because I have a podcast about him. <laughs> Sorry. And Catherine, Catherine uh, came on our podcast a couple months ago. Hi, Catherine. Hi. <laughs> hey. And uh, I'm so happy to hear you today. And I'm, I'm out of breath because I'm hiking in Los Angeles. So just don't mind that. Oh. But, okay. Uh, um, you said something about the, the difference between men and or boys and girls in physics and other science subjects. And, you know, it reminds me of something Thomas Sowell said, mm -hmm. where he said, you know, there are real biological reasons why boys and girls pick different subjects. Uh, one of them, and, and you mentioned physics, he mentioned that as well, is that uh, girls tend to pick subjects which have a lower obsolescence factor. Because women typically take many years off to raise children, if they come back to a career in physics after a five or six or seven year pause, they're completely in the dark. The profession has advanced so far. And that's why, as one of the reasons, I mean, of course there are many, but that's one of the reasons why girls pick subjects with a low obsolescence rate history, English. I mean, it doesn't change that fast. And you mentioned that uh, all the uh, teachers at the time were, were women, which actually makes sense because teaching physics has a very low obsolescence rate as well. Because Newton's first law is going to be Newton's first law for the next 500 years. It doesn't really change. And I just wanted to you know, mention that point. You know, there are real reasons for this and not just social conventions. But do you feel yeah. like, um, sorry, just to ask you, Thomas, do you feel like uh, young girls will be thinking this uh, themselves, like that far in advance, they're thinking, okay, I don't want to choose physics because it's moving, which actually, I mean, it depends what particular field of physics you're talking about. There's many fields that don't move, <clears throat> that it moves pretty slow, actually. But um, do you think, so are, are, is your question that you feel like, is, is, is something subconscious or is something that consciously young girls are doing? Uh, I think it, it, you know, it could be a subconscious. It could be even just a perception that the field is very cha is rapidly changing. That could deter 
uh, people from getting into it. Well, um, you know what? I don't know whether I agree with that. It's an interesting point. I've never, I didn't realize Thomas Sowell said that. I'm not sure I agree necessarily. Certainly when it comes to kids, I'm not sure they're thinking that way. But, um, but what I would just say is that I actually think that whole debate and people getting really angry with me about it just demonstrates how we only respect the things that men <coughs> tend to do. So because men tend to do more physics and maths, we all assume they're harder than English and history. And I don't think they are. And we always assume that whatever men are doing, that's better than what women do. And it's one of the reasons why teaching is so uh, it, it, it is not admired and not respected because historically teaching has been something women do. Uh, people don't think it's a hard thing to do. And I, frankly, I think teaching, being a good teacher, is the hardest thing in the world. It is so difficult to get it right. And people who don't teach have no idea. But that's because, again, what women do historically is not respected. And the fact is, the reason why I don't <coughs> mind if my girls take history and English is because they're just as hard as, as, as physics and maths. And this idea that whatever men do is obviously harder and more is more worthy of respect. I just, well, I just, I, I, I throw that out. I mean, I just don't agree. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, my wife homeschools our four girls and she has by far and away a much harder job than I do. Mm. Uh, yeah. Way, way hard. I know teaching is like the hardest job there is. There's no question about it. But I just, yeah. I just want to add one thing, which is that this pathological desire to um, make men and women the same and everything, I think is really leading to a deterioration in the relationships between men and women. And it's really, it's really disturbing the already stressed relationship between men and women and pushing us further apart. I mean, we're going to end up like in Japan, where the statistics show that like half or more of all men don't even want to date. You know, they're just, they're done. Like they're yeah. just not interested, you know, and I, I fear that for the West as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't suppose I'm an expert on dating, so I'm not sure I can comment. But, um, but yes, possibly, I don't know. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you. I'll let other people speak now. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, thank you very much, Alan. Sorry, I had to get your name wrong earlier. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I just wanted to come kind of, we've got a few people that's requesting, but I'm a bit worried that we, we're drawing a bit too close towards the end now. We only have 10 more minutes left. Um, so just just back onto that, that wokeism kind of. Um, yeah. Um, you said you said that it, it, sorry, it was it was something on the lines of, you know, they're trying to change the way we teach history. And um, but right now, do do you feel like the way we teach history is challenging enough to, you know, for example, when we teach we well, actually, in history, we tend to teach more English history rather than British history. Um, do you think that there's an argument that actually the, the, the British curriculum, the, the curriculum in the United Kingdom, it, it doesn't kind of challenge the things that went on during the British Empire, like the bad things? Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. It, it's an interesting question. When you look at the textbooks, I don't think that's true. I think very much it is taught if the textbooks are being used. And that's the thing. We don't actually know what is being taught in history lessons across the country. We have no idea. Um, all I know is what I see being spoken about at certain conferences and so on. But uh, we don't actually know. The textbooks would suggest that uh, all of the good and bad stuff is being taught. But... Um, but 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 we just don't know. So uh, I, I, you see, deconstructing whiteness 
I think that that's a phrase that we should never see. I worry that we will end up going down the road of um, America. So in America, once upon a time, they would teach uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, he was, you know, they would learn everything about him. Now they'll just only know his relationship to, to, to slaves. And that's it. Um, it. It becomes an obsessive thing. This, and that's not the case here necessarily in Britain right now, but I'm just saying we could go down that route and we're, we're, we're opening the doors to that world that where America has already gone down that road. Um, and I'm, I'm just sort of ringing alarm bells and saying, wake up everybody. Look, let's stop pretending that this isn't happening. It's beginning to happen and we need to be aware of it and, and put the brakes on because, um, Otherwise, we will end up where America is now, and we really don't okay, want that. Okay, fair enough. I want to take a moment to just take a look at some of these comments here. Um, so we could just very quickly, we have seven minutes left. So um, we have um, Nuren Khalid, who said, my question to people um, who argue that if we don't let young kids have smartphones, how will they learn to regulate themselves when older? And how do most learn to self-regulate when they start drinking when legally allowed to drink? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, so I don't, I, uh, wonderful, actually, I will use this in the future, um, which is that I don't think all of us would think to ourselves, in order to stop people from drinking loads when they're older, what we need to do is get them drinking at eight years old. I mean, I, I don't think anybody would think that. What we think is, they're not old enough to be able to regulate themselves properly with this. So we're going to keep it away from them until they reach an age where we can expose them to it. It's not just drinking. It's the same with driving. It's the same with having sex. It's the same with uh, smoking. It's the same with uh, any number of different things. You know, we don't let them do it because they're not old enough to be able to handle it. I think the same thing goes for phones. Um, it's also the case that if you've habitualized them into loving reading, um, that when that phone is introduced to them much later on, they won't just put the book down and go to the phone. They, they, they now love reading and they enjoy it. The problem with giving a phone to a toddler is that they will never learn to love reading unless they are exceptional. And you will be able to point to some people and say, look, I had a phone since I was two and I love reading. Yes. So you're super amazing. You're different. The vast majority of children just won't. And that's why more and more primary teachers are seeing that children simply are struggling with reading because they've had phones since they were born. OK, fair enough. Um, I also have something from Michael Olai here who said, um, how I think this is a question to you. How was your experience visiting Success Academy? I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts on the U.S. education system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, fascinating. Really, I mean, Eva has, Eva Moskowitz, who set up Success Academy. And I would stress to everybody on the call, you must all read Charter Schools and Their Enemies by Thomas Sowell. Um, he does a great job of analyzing data and looking at the success that Success Academy has had, which is just out of this world. Um, and they've got about 50 schools across New York working with disadvantaged communities. I mean, look, I visited a few classrooms in one of their schools. Um, they were really impressive. It was great to see. Um, you know, the thing is, what is sad is that Eva's just having to fight everybody. You know, I, I, I you know, it was funny because when she was speaking, I just kept nodding and nodding and she just sounded like me. Everything she was saying, I was going, yep, 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 yep. And every now and again, she'd try and defend something she said. And I'd say, don't need to defend. I know exactly what you mean. Keep going. And like, she just said everything I think. And I was amazing. It was fantastic to meet her. I mean, the thing is, she's fighting with everybody. She, she's fighting with everybody all the time, you know, and so am I. And it's just crazy. 
that in order to run good schools, you have to fight with everybody. I mean, it's not just us two. There are other heads here and, and in America who are fighting with everyone in order to, you know, keep their schools afloat and doing well. And that's what I meant in 2010. The system is broken. The system is broken if the, if the only way you can make your, 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 your school succeed is to fight. I mean, it should, it should be easy for us. And it's not easy. We have to fight. And that's, that, that's a broken system okay. for you. All right. I just want to quickly go back to phones because I've, I have uh, my friends also listening here. And um, uh, I've got a friend called Haseeb Khalid who I work with. He's a colleague of mine. Um, he, he feels like, um, you know, maybe maybe you, you're not correct on, on the phone thing. And I, I, I do see where he's coming from, actually. Again, going back to the book that I'm reading right now called Deep Work, um, he's, he argues that the reason why we don't let people drink early is because there's a biology behind it um he thinks that you know uh driving for example is is a uh, we we have an age restriction because there's um uh, you know lack of spatial awareness he's saying that actually if we don't teach young children how to regulate at a young age they won't gain the skills of self-regulation what do you say to that i say Go and take a look at the phone times on all of the kids in various schools. And when you see seven to eight hours that they spend on their phones every night, you tell me how that self-regulation is working yeah. out for you. Um, but I, I think the argument is that, you know, when they become adults and they're suddenly now thrown into phones, do you feel like they won't have those skills is, is the question. Yes. And my point is they clearly don't have those skills. If they're spending seven to eight hours on their phones when they're 14. Yeah. <laughs> it's a myth to suggest that they are self-regulating they are most definitely not okay fair enough i'm gonna we're we gonna have to bring it to a close today because um you know we, we've only got two minutes left did you have any last things you wanted to say no but if you if you have a couple minutes why don't you grab another question uh i, I don't know if i do um i have okay. i have a host here who could let me know um but i do think i have to finish at, at... okay yeah i don't want to get you into trouble <laughs> don't worry <laughs> okay well listen it was great talking yeah, to you thank you very much um thank you for joining us today it was a really good conversation i hope that we could have you on another time again because it was good to hear hear your opinion of things and and yeah. ladies and gentlemen we've we've drawn it to a close today um and you know we've we've i hope that we have dived deeper into the discourse divide and unpacking controversies in modern education our exploration into the importance of national identity, the role of schools, um, the, the culture that we create. We've dived into what a woke culture. We've dived, dived into um, conservatism in education. And we've also unpacked some controversies and we've opened the floor to some conversation. I just wanted to thank everyone that has joined and listened today. We had quite a lot of people listening, over 100 people at one point. Um, and so I, 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 do, I do hope that you've managed to take something away from today at least um and yeah I, I just wanted to bring that to a close once again just just saying if you had a chance to be an animal it would be a giraffe for those people that did miss that um but we did, we did speak <laughs> about quite a lot of really important things and strictness in schools and and knowledge rich curriculum my, i just had one last really short question that kind of popped in my head and i did want to ask this earlier on what okay. you know because you're a small c conservative conservative cons sorry i can't even get my words out can I just dress on that so everybody yeah, can hear sure. this? Small C conservative does not mean big C conservative. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of people on the left 
who are small C conservatives. My father is a man who's always voted on the left, will always vote on the left, but he is a small C conservative, right? It is not a political statement. It's about values. It's about believing in personal responsibility, believing in a sense of duty towards others, an idea of self-sacrifice, of putting the community before yourself. All of that, small C conservative values. So my question is, what does um, PSHE look like in your schools? Because obviously you do have to talk about some of these topics. So what does PSHE actually look like? Do you feel like um, the, the ideas that you were talking about before in terms of wokeism and all that stuff, do you try and inc- incorporate that into your PSHE? Uh, no, not necessarily. No, we'll do... I mean, a lot of it is kind of pretty st- standard PSHE stuff. Um, you know, you're teaching them how to be a good citizen, how to... Uh, no, I mean, I, no, but we're not talking about wokeism. No, I wouldn't say that. Okay, fair enough. All right, thank you very much, guys. I hope you've enjoyed. And look, we have a sunny day today. So go out and enjoy the sun. Yes. All right, thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for thank having you. me. Bye. Bye.